0: Father, first, we want to give you thanks for the provision, the provision of air conditioning, the provision of the building, the provision of comfortable seats. You have richly provided everything we need according to your riches and glory. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to provide, but this time, wisdom and insight into your word. May your word be elucidated, made clear by the power of your spirit. And may our understanding increase that we might, in turn, act in such a way to be conformed more to your image. And although we understand we will never be perfect in this life, we do understand we have your grace for those times and your mercy. So we call upon you this morning, Lord, first to be our guest of honor and second to instruct and guide us according to your will in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to start a little differently. We have a baby dedication. Elizabeth Marie is going to bring up her parents, Mike and Danielle, and we are going to have a baby dedication. But before we do that, I'm going to speak for a few minutes. We haven't had a baby dedication in a while. And I want to make sure everybody understands Why we even do baby dedications? Why don't we baptize the babies? Why do we even bring them up and dedicate them, so to speak? Well, in the Old and New Testaments, naming of the firstborn, circumcision, and offerings were brought to the temple when a child was born, namely the firstborn male. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 12, it says, For the generations to come, Every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner. Those who are not your offspring, whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. In the New Testament, the beginning stories in the Gospels, we have both John the Baptist and Jesus being brought to the temple. First, John in Luke chapter 1, verse 56. This is where Mary showed up and stayed with Elizabeth for about six months, or she was pregnant for six months, and then Elizabeth stayed with her for three months more and then returned home when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby. She gave birth to her son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah, but his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. And then Jesus, approximately six months later, they were cousins, by the way, six months later... Jesus was born, and he was brought to the temple as well. In Luke chapter 2, verse 21, On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, we no longer bring young boys to the church and circumcise them and bring an offering of a couple of birds. We don't do that anymore. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we bring our children before the Lord to consecrate them, to dedicate them, to set them apart, to let everyone know that the parents are the ones who are worshipers of Jesus Christ and want Jesus' blessings. Now, again, before we perform this act, I need to let you know what child dedication is not. Child dedication is not securing salvation for the child, for the baby. Well, how do you get that salvation, and why do people then dedicate, or why do people baptize their babies? Well, first of all, salvation needs to be clear. The book of Romans tells us what salvation is all about, because there are none righteous, no, not one, according to Romans chapter 3, verse 10. No one who does good, no one who seeks after God on their own. They must be drawn by the Holy Spirit. After that takes place, then we know according to Romans chapter 3 verse 23 for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God there is no one who is perfected in this life or arrives perfected even if we go through this life and we never commit a sin we are still not entitled to go to heaven because we have the sinful nature and God declares to us in Romans chapter 5 verse 8 that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. You know, somebody might die for someone who was good, but we were not only bad, we were really bad. And Jesus chose to die for us in that state. And we are all still really bad and unless we have Christ Then God looks at us and says, well, the flesh has to be destroyed, but I'm taking you to heaven. And then going on from there, we know that Romans chapter 5 verse 12, that therefore just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin in the same way death came to all men because all sinned that's why we die it was not meant to be originally when adam and eve were created it was god's will that they live forever because they had the tree of life but they chose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil romans 6 23 says for the wages of sin is death but the gift of god is eternal life through jesus christ our lord and so the wages of sin is what we get paid for because of our sin we are do something and that something is punishment it is contempt in Matthew chapter 25 verse 46 it says some will be raised to everlasting life and some to everlasting punishment and the adjective used on both of those is everlasting it goes on forever. It doesn't end. And some people in this world, they want to think, well, God is a loving God. He would never let somebody dwell in a state of punishment forever. But that's not what the word says. It also says that in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, that some will be raised to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. And this is a place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And a child, a child doesn't understand, well, how do you get saved? You turn to a child and say, are you saved? And they might go, uh-huh. Or they might, uh-uh, they, they have no idea what salvation is. Now, going on from there, well, how exactly does it happen that we get saved? And you guys have heard me say it often enough, Romans 10, 9, and 10. And this is the formula. For if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and with your mouth that you confess and are saved and romans it also tells us in ten thirteen that all who call on the name of the lord will be saved so the simple task is simply lord jesus save me that's all we have to do we want to be saved from our sins but we confess him as lord as well please be lord of my life and it 's not a suggestion, it is a command in Scripture to do that. God is not willing that any should perish, and those who don't then Matthew chapter twenty five verse forty six and Daniel chapter twelve verse two come into play. There are only two places there's one with God and one without God. There is no way station, like you take a plane somewhere, if you, you want to go to the Caribbean, you have to land in Houston or you have to land in North Carolina or some the way station before you get there. There is none of that. We are either here in this earth, and as a believer, we are present with God when we die. Immediately, we go to his presence. If we don't go there, if we've chosen not to confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, if we choose not to do that, then we go to a place of waiting, and it's called Hades, and that's where we exist until the great white throne judgment when everybody is resurrected at that point. Now, most people they're offended by this. They're offended by this idea that, so what are you telling me? There's only one way? Yes, I'm telling everybody there is only one way. And some people will say, well, how do you know that? Why aren't the other monotheistic religions correct? Why isn't Judaism correct? Why isn't being a Muslim in Islam, why isn't that correct? The only reason that I personally hold to the teaching of the Bible is because it is prophetic. Things have been told to us even hundreds of years, even thousands of years, before they have actually taken place with specific detail that is given to us. And there's not just one or two. There are hundreds of them. I've told you before when I've talked to my Muslim friend Omar, I asked him to find me some prophecy in the Quran. Zero nothing. And of course we know the book of Isaiah talks about how God is the one who knows the future and nobody else does, and he speaks of it as if it has already happened. He speaks of it sometimes in the past tense. So people are offended by this, and those people who can be offended in the gospel is an offense to those who are perishing. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 18, excuse me, chapter 1 verses 18 through 25. It talks about those who consider the cross of Christ and this salvation thing and following Christ as a believer, as a born-again, as Christian. They believe it is foolishness. It's foolishness to believe that. We see no evidence of that whatsoever. On the contrary, we have the evidence. It's God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says, "'For the message of the cross is foolishness "'to those who are perishing, "'but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God.'" And most of the world thinks that if we just do good, God will accept us. but we forget the first verse that I gave you, Romans chapter three, verse ten there are no There is no one who is good, there is no one who is righteous, there is no one who seeks after God, so God makes it very clear to us that even if you do what is good, that doesn 't entitle us to go to heaven As a matter of fact, without Jesus Christ. The book of Isaiah says, our works that we do that are good, they are like filthy rags. Now, I'm going to be a little descriptive here. And the only reason I'm going to tell you this is because it's in Scripture. The filthy rags that are referred to there are referring to menstrual cloths. And so when we do a good work and we do not have Christ and we think we're going to go to God and say, see my good work? They are very unpleasant to God. He doesn't look at them and give them any merit whatsoever. He just simply says, go away from me. I never knew you. But those who know God and those who follow Jesus Christ, we store up for ourselves treasures in heaven, so to speak. And metaphorically, it's given to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It says, we produce here in this life wood, hand stubble, gold, silver, and precious stones. Again, it's a metaphor. And those works that we do for selfish motivation, that's wood, hay, and stubble. The things that we do for God purely out of no self-motivation at all, just because the love of God is in us, that's the gold, silver, and precious stones. And God puts a torch, fire to our works, the mounds of the works that we do, and the wood, hay, and stubble is burned up, and whatever is left is our reward when we get to heaven. But if we haven't accepted Jesus, we have no reward whatsoever, only a fearful day of judgment which lies ahead. Well, in dedicating a child, what if, since salvation is obtained by confession and believing, and a child is too young, like little Elizabeth Marie, she's too young to understand that. Well, what if, God forbid, and this happens all over the world, like I've been to Uganda, and in Uganda, the mortality rate for incidents is over 50%. What about those children who pass on from this life who don't make it? Do they go to heaven? Shouldn't they be baptized in order to ensure that they go there? No, baptism is not meritorious. It is not beneficial in a way that God looks at us and says, oh, you get to go to heaven. The first thing that I would refer to would be, it, it's in Second Samuel chapter 11 and 12, that is where King David and Bathsheba, they had a baby through an adulterous affair. And as a result, God judged David and Bathsheba for that, and he took the child. The child died. And David, before the child died, he mourned for the child. He pleaded with God to spare the child's life, and it was not meant to be. And so when the child died, after that, King David got up. He washed himself because he would have had sackcloth, wearing sackcloth like a gunny sack, He also would have thrown ashes on his head. That's how they mourned during that time. But after the child died, he got up, he took a bath, he cleaned himself, and he sat down and he ate. And it confused those who were his attendants. They said, well, why before did he act like this? And now that the child has died, he's gotten up and he's eating. The opposite would have been the case in most cases, where he would have been fine before that, praying, certainly, but afterwards he would have put on the sackcloth and ashes. And so when they asked King David that, he said, you know, I, or he can no longer come to me, but I will go to be with him. Which means the child went to heaven. I call this the doctrine of hope. Jesus also in Matthew chapter 19, verse 14, which we covered last week, he said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And so before a child, I believe Scripture teaches us, before a child reaches this point, this age of accountability, where they are able to discern right and wrong, to choose the good or to choose the bad, until that time comes, I believe it's a, remember this, an e-ticket? If you guys, or Magic Kingdom card, you know, you get all the rides, you get a free pass. I believe this is also the case for those who are, mentally infirmed or diminished they're not able to function in such a way that that they're paraplegic and they can't move they are infirmed in such a way they're not ambulatory they cannot get around and their mind may not be fully there i believe they get a free entrance into heaven because they are not able to do good or to do wrong and knowing what they're doing they never reach quote unquote that age of accountability and Scripture tells us God will have mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy. That's in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So it does not ensure salvation, and all of you now understand what this salvation is. Also, it does not ensure or guarantee grace or favor from God. Just because we take a little child, we pray for the little child, and we bless them just like Jesus would do, it doesn't mean God goes, oh, well, I have to bless this child now. It doesn't work like that. Romans 9.14 talks about uh, this idea of I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He chooses just because of his goodness to bless everyone, both the good and the evil. He causes rain to fall on those who are desperately wicked, as well as those who are righteously saved and good in Jesus Christ. He causes both to be blessed. And so just because we do something, God is not obligated to do something for us because we did something for him. We're making a bargain That often happens when somebody reaches the end of life. They start bargaining with God. God, if you heal me, then, you know, I'll do this. God is not obligated in any shape, manner, or form. Also, we are not dedicating a child in lieu of water baptism. We do not practice water baptism, and neither do we look down upon those who do. We simply believe it is not taught in the scriptures. And we also know that the scripture tells us, remember when Noah was on the water and he was saved in the ark by water? In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, it talks about how this water saved them. Well, it now saves us also, but it's not the water. He goes on to say, it's not the cleansing of dirt from the body, but it is a pledge of a good conscience towards God that's how we get saved where we turn to god and our conscience is wiped clean god says i understand where you are and he takes away the guilt of our sin in the old testament the guilt was never taken away they just had to carry the burden under christ and his blood he is able to take away the guilt when we sin so we don't have to walk around condemned that's romans chapter 8 verse 1 There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So it does not ensure salvation. It does not ensure or guarantee grace or favor from God. It is not in lieu of water baptism. But what it does, child dedication, is it demonstrates the faith of the parents. The parents are standing up, and it speaks about the dedication of their life to God. Just as somebody As they become a believer, they say, well, God owns everything. All my possessions are his. It's like when somebody gives money. I told you this a few weeks ago. If somebody gives money, somebody would usually, uh, the first time they do it, they say, well, how much should I give? And that's the wrong question. The question is, how much should I keep? Because everything belongs to God. And when it comes to our possessions, that's very understandable. But when it comes to our children, that which is most precious to us, We go before God and say, God, you have put this child in my arms on loan for a little while. And I will hold this child and take care of this child. But I understand this child is yours and it is a gift from you. It says, blessed is the man whose quiver is full. And a quiver refers to arrows in the little holder that the archer would wear on his back. That's a quiver. And the quiver usually held 30 arrows so mike and danielle you need to have a a couple more children and 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 so this idea that god blesses us with these children it's a fantastic thing to do that and it's showing that the parents believe in jesus christ and his blessing can be placed upon the child and we do ask for that we ask for God's grace and favor, even though it's not a guarantee through this act that we actually receive that. And when we pray, we ask for protection, we ask for provision, we ask for God's providence, his care over his creation, and also for wisdom for the parents and the extended family who will offer support in differing modes for the rearing of the baby. That's what we pray for. And so we're just all as a congregation, as a church, as believers, we get together and we say, God, we ask for your blessing upon the parents. We ask for your blessing upon the child. We ask for your blessing upon the extended family. And by the way, Scripture tells us in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that if he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. So if it's God's will that his people are blessed and we ask for it, do you think he's going to deliver that? Yes, he is. There's no question about it. The only time he doesn't deliver things to us is when we ask for something to heap it upon ourselves. God, I want a million dollars because I like that sports car. He goes, "No, you're yeah, no. That's not what God is about. God is not the candy man. He doesn't deliver things like that to us just because we want them. Now he can if he chooses and it's his will." But he wants us to be more like his son, Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're doing when it comes to dedication. So now if Elizabeth Marie can bring up her parents, Mike and Daniel, and the whole family who wants to come up here, because we're going to introduce you to everybody that's here. So come on up, all who are able. Okay, why don't you stand right here? And we can come this side, too. We don't have to all lopsided on the stage here. Good? Now, I, I warned Mike ahead of time that he has to name every family member and say what part of the family they are. So go ahead. Cousin James here, we have uh, great-grandma Norma, my beautiful wife, Elizabeth, uh, cousin Joey, uh, grandma Joyce, uh, grandpa Scott, uh, (laughs) 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 uncle Peter, (laughs) (laughs) and uncle Uncle Chris. All right. (laughs) Way to go. Are we ready? Hey, Elizabeth. Yeah, it's me. Hi. You want to come to me? You want to come to me? You want to come to me? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Okay, we'll just do it anyhow. How Go about we it. keep you up there? You want to see? I don't know. Oh. Oh. Who is that? Oh. <laughs> All those people out there. Okay, so we're going to pray. And if you would bow your heads and join me. Father, we know it is such a blessing to have babies, whether our children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren, you provide them. And we look to you and give you thanks for that. for a little Elizabeth Marie, Father, we pray that your hand would guide and direct her and protect her that you would give her people of influence surrounding her as she grows and, and, and she walks in you and she wants to go to mommy. So will go to mommy. Yeah. So Father, we, we pray for her that you would uh, not only protect her physically but also her mind, that the influences of the world that are so wicked and dark in which we dwell, that she would be protected from that that you would somehow shield her as she grows. And as she does mature, I pray that she would mature into a godly woman, that she would be an influence to tens and hundreds and even thousands if it's your will, that she would speak kindly about you to those that she comes in contact with and that she would be a witness to her entire family. And so give her strength, Lord. Give her determination to follow after you. And as she grows, may it be early that she accepts you as her Lord and Savior. And for Mike, Father, I pray for Mike that you would grant him the wisdom to be the head of the household, the man of the family, the one who is the provider. And we know that Scripture says in the book of James that all who ask for wisdom, you grant it without finding fault. We know that you wouldn't hold anything against him. If he asked for it and we asked that you would provide it liberally and that he'd be able to see danger which lies ahead and he'd be able to bless his family in ways that they never thought possible, that you would open doors for him, whether it's in the way of employment or the way of helping those inside the church and just being a servant and father for his wife and mother, Danielle. I pray that you would place in her heart a softness that no one can live up to for her child and for her husband. I pray that you would give her that book of Proverbs woman that seeks after you, that is diligent in all things in the household and a brooding mother in a good way over her child, Elizabeth Marie. And we know, Lord, that trials will come, and when they do... I pray that Danielle and Mike will place their trust in you. For those things that you do for us, they happen for our good. And we know that from your word. And for the rest of the extended family, Lord. I pray that they would have the understanding that only you can provide, like from the book of Proverbs. All the Proverbs that are listed there provide so much wisdom. And I pray that you would help them in their pursuit of just being family that they would know how to treat Elizabeth, that they would not make mistakes as we all do, Lord. But I pray also that the grace would be there for when that happens. And again, protect Elizabeth, for we all fail in so many ways. But we know that you are able to raise this child up, to use her for your glory with the help of the family and her parents. So we pray for your blessing upon them in Jesus' name. And the church said? Okay, now first... It is our tradition. You guys got this, okay? Hold on to that. And it is also our tradition to provide a quilt to commemorate the day. Okay. That. You guys get to see it. By the way, when it it comes to the quilts, my daughter, who is pregnant right now, she's going to have a baby in November, she still has her blankie. And she's in her 30s. So may this guy go with you, okay? God bless you guys. All right. You can either exit that way or this way. You're welcome, brother. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, I had her for a minute before she started crying, huh? Who is that man? It's not my father. It's not my daddy. daddy. Yes, he is a daddy. That's right. Okay, what we're going to do now is pick up where we have been in the Gospel of Matthew. And we just covered the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and asked him, what he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus said, well, you keep all the commandments. And he listed all the commandments there, about six of them. And he said, all of those I have kept from my youth. And he said, what more do I lack? And Jesus turned to him, knowing that he was a rich young man. He said, take all your possessions, all that you have, sell them and give the money to the poor and come and follow after me. And the man went away very sorrowful. Because that was the one thing that was keeping him from trusting in God. Because when we have nothing, who do we put our trust in? God. When we have everything, who do we put our trust in? We put our trust in our stuff and ourselves. And so that's why Jesus told him to get rid of everything. Then Jesus went on to say, It is harder for a rich man to enter into heaven than for a camel to fit through an eye of a needle. And this needle was a surgeon's or a sewing needle. And as I explained to you last week, it is impossible for a camel to fit through an eye of a needle. And I gave you a description about all of that. And the people said, well, who, or the disciples said, well, who can be saved then? Because as I told you last time, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, I think it's verse 18, it talks about the Lord is the one who provides the ability to have increase, to get wealth. And when somebody was wealthy back then, they thought, well, they certainly have the blessing of God. And of course, they may have the blessing of God to be able to make a lot of money, have a lot of possessions, but it doesn't get us into heaven. But Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. So the person who is rich in this life, it is impossible for them to get in based on their own merit, just like it is for the poor person to get into heaven. It is impossible. Impossible for anyone to get there except through the power of Jesus Christ. Now, if we go back right previous, in Matthew chapter 18, we started with the man who had the huge debt. Remember, it was about $2.5 billion that he owed. And the other guy who only owed a little bit was about $2,000. Well, we know that the debtor had to trust the master for the forgiveness of the debt. We also went on uh, with this idea of marriage. And the, the leaders of the time, they asked Jesus, well, is it lawful for a man to get a divorce for any and every reason? And I explained all that to you. And sometimes it's very difficult, but God says, don't get a divorce. Now, can you get a divorce scripturally? Well, it says if there's adultery, yes, you can get a divorce, but it's never commanded. And God says, work it out. Stay married. And if you do that, you'll have the blessing of God. And you have to trust that it's God's will that this is going to work out. Now, we may have made the mistake of thinking, well, I'm going to marry this person, this man, or this woman, and it turned out wrong, completely wrong. And so what do you do? Do you just marry, divorce, remarry, divorce, remarry, divorce? And how many times is too many? Is five times too many? I think Elizabeth Taylor was married over five times. It's like a, a... carousel revolving door where uh, men or women just go about their business and they just divorce and remarry and divorce and remarry and Jesus said do not do that and you have to trust God inside the marriage also he went on to talk about the little children as I just read you their trust is without reservation if you tell a little child something they're going to believe you that's why they need to be protected because they could be told anything and they will simply believe it And I'm going to tell you this as a side note. Patty and I have been listening to this little podcast. And as early now in California as kindergarten, they're going to ask those kindergartners to start questioning their gender. And it is mandatory that the teachers teach this curriculum inside the schools in California. And that is going to mess up so many children And they're going to talk about sexual matters with kids in kindergarten and the first grade all the way through primary school. And I don't know if God holds off a little bit longer. I don't know why. Because when we start messing with the kids, such is the kingdom of God. And it's better that a millstone be tied around the neck of any individual that would lead these children astray. And I don't know about you, but have you ever picked up a 200-pound stone? I know these strong men do that. Well, a millstone was definitely over 200 pounds. And when Jesus was talking about a millstone being put around the neck, when that millstone would be thrown over the cliff, it would instantly break the neck of the individual, and they would fall down on the cliffs into the ocean, and it would not be a pretty sight when that took place, especially if the millstone landed on them, something like that. And so Jesus said, you mess with those kids you're in trouble. And I feel sorry for the families today. I I would recommend in California, anybody, privatize. Go to a private school or homeschool. Stay out of the public schools. That would be my advice. Now going on with this, the rich man also, the rich young ruler, he needed to trust in God as well. You see this thread going through there? The debtor those who are in marriages that aren't so good, those who are are little children, they trust without reservation, and also the rich man, he needs to trust in Christ, and the disciples who are trusting in Jesus for their heavenly reward because they asked Jesus, well, what remains for us then if we don't have any wealth of any kind? And and Jesus says, don't you worry about a thing. And This is Bill's version. Once you get to heaven, you're going to get 100 times that which you have given up here in this life. And by the way, he was using hyperbole. It could be a thousand times. It could be 10,000 times. It's actually going to be innumerable the blessings that we will receive for anything that we've given up here in this life. But that's usually what we don't want to do. We don't want to sacrifice anything here for the delayed gratification of heaven. We say, why should we do that? We're so prosperous. And it's not that we can't have goods and things and houses and cars and all of that, it, it's fine. But if God calls us to give up something, we would simply say, okay, now what? Well, then the trust comes in. So going through the last of chapter 18 and through chapter 19, it's this idea of trust. And then we have to apply it to ourselves. Do we see our debt? Do we see how much we owe to Jesus Christ for forgiving us of our sins? Will we make every effort to Keep a marriage together will we be trusting like the child for everything god provides or for him to provide everything <coughs> excuse me and are we willing to abandon everything we have like the rich young ruler to follow jesus if we knew it was christ telling us i want you to give this up would we give it up or would we hold on to it and we'd say no I'm going to hold on to this. And we also need to trust Christ that he will reward us for what we have given up in this life to follow him. And so we should have a light touch on the things of this life. And I'm not talking about just possessions. I'm talking about family as well. If Christ calls us to forsake a family member for whatever reason, and by the way, God set up the family, so unless there's something wrong, he's not going to do that. But if he asks us, well, I'm going to take someone from your family, are you willing so that you might go out and do something else to have your spouse or your child taken to heaven at this time? And, of course, we have to be saying the Lord's will be done. That's where he wants us, in that mode of trust and not wavering from it. Now, going on in chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning. Now, this would be at 6 a.m. to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, which would be 9 a.m., he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour. This would be at lunchtime, noon. And the ninth hour, which would be three o'clock, and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, which would be five o'clock in the evening, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, Why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, You also go work in my vineyard. When evening came, this would be six o'clock, The owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the 11th hour, or 5 o'clock, came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius when they received it they began to grumble against the landowner these men who were hired last only or worked only one hour they said and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day but he answered one of them friend i am not being unfair to you didn't you agree to work for a denarius take your pay and go I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Now, I want you to bring this into modern day. You go down to Home Depot. You go down to Lowe's. You need somebody to work at your house. And you arrive there at 6 a.m., and somebody is standing out front, and they say, yeah, I'll work. So you take them to your house, and you may pay them 10 to 15 bucks an hour, hopefully something like that, and you pay them cash, and you buy them a burrito, or you buy them a sandwich, or you give them something for lunch, and it is yesterday 95 degrees outside and you're having them pull weeds and move rocks and dig a trench and they're sweating like mad and you provide gallons of water for them and then you go back at two o'clock in the afternoon once the temperature starts to drop a little bit and you hire four more guys and you bring them in and you say guys i just want you to rake some leaves over here in the same yard that this guy is working Now, when it comes time to pay the workers from Home Depot, you line them up, and the last four that you brought in, you say, Ah, here's your money, and you give them per hour the same ten or fifteen bucks, but it's not just ten or fifteen bucks. You gave you give them the full amount that the first worker got paid. Now, what would the first four say? (laughs) Right on, man. Muchos gracias. You know, that would be just a fantastic thing for them. But what would the guy digging the trench say once you paid him the same amount as the other four? He might be a little miffed, a little upset. Well, why are you paying these guys this much when I bore the work all day long and I sweated? And, and then you would turn to the first guy and say, didn't I talk to you and didn't you agree to work for this much? And the person will say, yeah, but it's not fair. God says, oh no, I will have mercy on who I will have mercy. If I want to be generous with my money, I can be generous with my money. And that person who comes first, who bears the burden, the load of ministry of the work of the Lord and all of that. And he says, I've been with you all these years and I have nothing compared to these guys who come and proportionally the guys who came last are making much more than the guy who started early. And God can choose to do that. Now, how would you transfer that into Christianity? Say, for instance, a young man or a young woman, they get saved. Let's say a young man. He gets saved. He walks his whole life with the Lord. He may be in the pulpit, he may not be in the pulpit, but he serves in the church. He, he carries on every Sunday, pretty much. He's there, except that there's a football game. And then he chooses not to come or maybe the World Series or something like that. But for the most part, the guy's there. He's serving well. It's wonderful to see him. But the whole time, he's never stopped complaining. It's like the guy who works in the yard. It's so hot out here. I need more water, please. Oh, come on. He's got some food. Or, oh, man, this pick is really dull. Yeah, Can't you, you have something sharper? It's, oh, I can't believe it. Who are those four guys? Well, why don't you help them help me with my trench over here? And But see, you relate that to kind of ministry. Well, I've been serving in the children's ministry forever. Nobody comes over and says, thank you whatsoever. And all I get is these little animal crackers and a box of juice at the end of the day. And, you know, what's with that? and everything has been misplaced. and I just don't get that. You know, when we went up to Yuba City, there was a guy who worked in the church up there. I don't remember his name, but those who were in Yuba City will remember this guy. He had these modular trailers were up there and they were put together in different rooms and there were four sets of them that were up there and he had all this stuff in one trailer. He was kind of like a hoarder. He kept everything. Remember that, Pat? Remember that hoarding over off to the side? You couldn't even walk through these modulars which were up there. And some things got moved. And this guy, his arms are flailing. Where are my doors? My doors? What what happened to that? And look at this. They took my extension. I mean, just every word that came out of his mouth was a complaint of some kind. And we're all just going, oh, they you know we were just trying to get some work done and this guy he is just upset and the own, the ministry heads there they just kind of go like just get out of here you know just go somewhere else do something else for the time being but the guy would not be satisfied whatsoever so say an individual goes for just decades but just complains all the time and murmurs and talks about this person. Why is that going on here? And How come they change the color of the sanctuary? And Well, that's new. Why is that in here? And they just have something negative to say about everything and everyone. But at the end of their life, they make it into heaven. They're saved. Their pile of wood and stubble is probably bigger than the gold, silver, and precious stones. But then somebody gets saved for one year. And they are on fire for the Lord. They, Boy, you just, it's like you get next to them and you get lit because they're on fire. You get nice and toasty. They just love Jesus Christ and there's none like them. And they want to share their faith. And they end up going out and discipling more people and bringing more people into heaven than this other man that served for decades. Now, which one should get the greater reward? It would be the one who came in at the end and was doing the will of the Father. And by the way, in this same scenario, he didn't complain about anything, was eager to do any job that came forward. And so when God wants to be generous, he can pay them disproportionately, even though it may be an equal amount, because we all get salvation. That's one of the points here. We all get salvation. We all get that. We get a crown of glory. We're saved. But there may be additional crowns available to us. And they may be given to those who have been so faithful and so quiet. The prayer warriors who just, they pray for everything and you don't see them much else. But man, there is no one who prays like them. And so when we get to heaven, we want to make sure that we have sent our investment ahead, so to speak. We don't want to waste the time down here with earthly pursuits. Now, we can have hobbies, we can do things, but when that supersedes the opportunities, the open doors, where we say no to the open door, and we say no to this worldly pursuit or hobby or business or whatever it might be, when we do that, that's putting God second in line. You know what you're actually doing is, especially if it's a job, we are we are declaring to everyone that money is more important than Jesus Christ and getting people saved. Because if you have a hobby, you have to have money to support the hobby. So you want to work more instead of serve more. And this is where, as we previously talked about, it's the sacrificing. Now, should anybody be condemned? As I said last week, well, what are you saying? I can't have a hobby? I can't have a job? No, I can't please ride with me in wisdom we can do these other things we can and god wants us to have respite god wants us to have fun god wants us to enjoy life if you like riding broncos i'm not talking about the ford i'm talking about horses if you like doing that or bulls only rodeo have at it do it enjoy your life but none of that should interfere with god saying here's an open door walk through it because when he does that we're going to have to sacrifice something else in order to walk through that open door my prayer for everyone in here is that we pay attention to the promptings of the spirit that we say yes and amen to whatever he asks us to do and we do not immediately resist or complain, well, that doesn't fit with my idea of organization and I can't do that because that just interferes with my life and that's not how I see things. If an opportunity presents itself, you simply say yes. And I'm talking about those that the Lord brings to us. Now, how do you know if the Lord brings it to you? You'll know. Just ask and seek after the Lord. He'll bring those things and you'll be able to turn around in hindsight and go, wow, that was totally God that did that. Or you'll be able to turn around and say, that wasn't very smart because I didn't use the scripture to guide me when God opens an open door. When he opens the door, I should say. So may God bless you, fill you with the spirit. May you hear his voice clearly. May you actually read what he says to do and what to not do in scripture because we are all in the scripture we are either reading it or we are listening to it and may you all never forsake fellowship we should never pass up the chance to dwell together with believers when it is there we should never say ah not today i don't feel like it you know you might feel better after talking with some of these filthy rotten sinners who have been saved so spend some time with them let's pray father we we thank you for your word how it guides and directs us and how through these past couple of chapters you have shown us that we need to trust you whether we are in debt or whether we have abundance and that our faith needs to be like the little child and not worry about the reward because you sort all of that out you will bless us with more than we ever thought possible more than we could ever ask or imagine You're so good to us, Lord. We thank you for the salvation that you provide, the fellowship of the saints, the apostles' doctrine, and in fact, the breaking of bread, the communion for which we remember the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, our salvation. We give you thanks, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.